one weekend a year, we give ourselves to taking questions from the floor about the Christian life, about the Bible, about theology, about something maybe you've read that you've struggled with, and uh, Pastor Lucas and Pastor John have microphones, and you wave them down if you have a question, and what we'll do for our time, instead of preaching through a passage in Acts, we will uh, chat with each other about questions. Just ask that they be uh, sincere, they be your question, and they be somehow related to the Christian life, about the Bible, about theology, or whatever might be on your mind. A sincere question, a question that you think would be helpful uh, to have some answers to, and I hope I will do my best to give you some answers tonight. All right, so here we go. Are we ready? Front row, love it. So I have a question to ask. Um, while I was reading through my DBR, I was really kind of asking questions to one of my colleagues that I have a relationship, one of my friends from uh, my life, though, and I was asking him about basically if Joe was a, like, you know, a biblical or like a Hebrew or Jewish name, and apparently it's not, though. So one of the questions I want to ask here is, would Joe be one of the very first, uh, like, non-Israelites to be Christians, like Nebuchadnezzar kind of repentance? or Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that Job, probably as a historical figure, predates Abraham. So, um, and that's odd because it comes so much later in the story. It's a poetic book, and that means it probably was at least codified and put into, into the canon of Scripture as, of course, I believe it is fully God-breathed and inspired, but probably during the uh, the monarchy, or somewhere in the 10th century, um, 9th century, 10th century, 11th century, B.C., uh, that is. Uh, that, um, though, doesn't give us any kind of correspondence to the time frame of when it took place. So it's, it's a little bit more, instead of you use Nebuchadnezzar, I would use someone like Melchizedek, right? Someone that, uh, you know, is contemporary, of course, of Abraham. But here's someone that is rightly relating to the God of the Bible, prior to Moses, 600 years before Moses, right? Uh, so this was, a, I, I believe, a historical story, and Job is a, a figure, but we can't think of him as like, here's a Jewish person because Abraham hadn't been born yet. Or if he was, maybe it was during the patriarchal period, during that period of time. So that's a great observation. And the reason I say that is because if you carefully study even the language of, of, um, of Job, you I mean, you will find that it does fit the classical monarchical uh, monarchy, the period of the monarchy of, of Hebrew language, but there are words in it that don't match that period of time. Uh, monetary units. Uh, think of this, even how long he lived, right? Think about how long he lived, right? Even at the end of the story, he's going to live, you know, 100 and whatever years, 210 years or whatever. So those time frames of longevity of age put it back, I think, before Abraham, uh, monetary unit that's described, it's certainly not of the time of Solomon or, or David. So, um, yeah, you make a good observation there, and um, that is why I think we don't have a Jewish name. Good point. And he's a priest for his family. Think about that, right? He's sacrificing. You couldn't do that. You wouldn't do that after the Levitical priesthood. In chapter 1, he's there doing sacrifices as the, as the family priest. It's just a different, uh, a different arrangement. Which Those are all clues, even though we have no clear date given to us for Job at the beginning of the book. Yeah, question, another front row question. You back row people get ready because we're coming for you next. Uh, so in Matthew 12, um, 
Jesus speaks of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I always struggled with it because he says that whoever speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, will not be forgiven. So, like, I don't know how to deal with that because, like, I understand that, like, you know, Jesus will forgive every sin. So why is there, like, the unforgivable ones? Yeah. Well, let's start, first of all, even with the phrase he uses, Son of Man. There were things that you would see Jesus teach or hear him teach. There were things you might see him do that were um, indicative of mankind. They would be a, a great example of an excellent person doing an excellent thing because he fulfilled all human righteousness. You could speak against Jesus doing something righteous and good and, and then say, oh, I was wrong because I've been convicted by what he says and repent and great. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the context is that he's just done miraculous signs. And people that knew the scriptures, the Pharisees, the leaders, the scribes, they had watched what he had done. This was an evidence of the Holy Spirit's miraculous work. And they're going now, there's no other way you can prove Jesus' divinity more starkly and clearly than that, right? He, he then says, it's not going to be forgiven, right? So to say that somehow I read that passage and I struggle with maybe I've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because I got mad at God one day and shook my fist at him, I just don't think this is a replicatable situation. You're not living in the first century watching the miraculous works of the Messiah taking place in front of your eyes. The evidence of the Holy Spirit's work through the Son of Man, the Messiah, and say, um, you are of the devil, which is what they had just done. And, and remember this, in Scripture, every time you have more light given to people, the higher the judgment. In other words, he said it would be more bearable right, for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Chorazin and Bethsaida. Bethsaida and Chorazin were towns where Jesus had come through and done his ministry and done miracles. And if they were like, eh, I'm not interested, right? He says, well, even the debauched and, and, and sexually immoral activity of Sodom and Gomorrah, God's going to go lighter on them than these cities, even though they're not as flagrantly immoral, because they had so much information about Christ. But what about the people that didn't just shrug their shoulders and say, eh, not interested? What about people who said, you're of the devil? I just saw you, you know, that guy who was blind now sees, you're, you're, that's Satan, right? Jesus said that you crossed the line at that point. And, and, and so I know a lot of people are concerned about that passage, Matthew 12, because they think that could be true of me. And I'm thinking, I don't think that's true of you. As a matter of fact, the people that are concerned that it might be true of them, right, are showing me some good signs of spiritual interest or spiritual life. So I hope that helps. Where are we at next? Got to wave, wave me down because I can't, can't see. Okay, good. Well, we went to the back, didn't we? All right. Now, Pastor John's got a mic here, so someone flag him down next. Yes, fire away. Yeah, and uh, Ben's Bible said I'm going through John 14. I was wondering if you could explain the end of verse 28 where it says, I'm going to my Father for the Father is greater than I. Yeah. Yeah, well, the greatness of the Trinity, right, the the, the Let's put it this way. To even have the titles Father and Son shows something of a relational hierarchy. It has nothing to do with ontology. In other words, who Jesus is. We would say that everything that Jesus did proved that he is worthy of human worship, for instance. They worshipped him, and he accepted worship. He controlled nature. It says in John 1, 1, he was the agency of creation. He spoke everything into, into existence that existed. Right? He's the creator of all things. So as we look at Jesus as the Son of God, we would say he's worthy of all worship of, of the Im, transcendent, immortal God. But in the Godhead, there's relationships, right? 
And, and here's what Jesus keeps saying, things like, well, my father is working, so I'm always working. Uh, whatever the father tells me, I speak. So there's this, this subordination of the relationship between the son and the father. Even the words themselves speak to that. So greater cannot mean that he's greater in terms of ontology, who he actually is, divinity. Uh, but you can say the roles here that are arranged in the Godhead, right? they're definitely, there is a, a, a distinction. Just like you might come in, if someone comes into a business and someone is uh, you know, a middle manager and the, the, the person, the customer comes in and talks to them like they're you know, the, the CEO, they say, oh, no, no, no. I, that's above my pay grade, right? Well, what is that? You don't think you're as worthy as the CEO of being re respected and have all the dignity of humanity? We're not saying that. I'm just saying that's not my role. I'm, the, I'm not the CEO here. So we say Jesus is Lord of all. But even in the subjection in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, when it says all things is subjected to the Son, it says, of course, but not, not the Father, right? In other words, there's a subjection of role and, and, and position and function but not worth and not dignity and not divinity. And that's the distinction that's made. And that's how Jesus plays out his ministry. And one of the reasons he does that, at least I can say one of the reasons it's applied to us in that way, is that Jesus, according to 1 John, is providing a template for the way that we should live. He's showing what it is to be subjected to the Father. And you ought to live a life that's subjected to the Father. And you should say, not my will, but yours be done. And that kind of, of relational subordination in role is simply describing the relationship between the Father and the Son. Hope that helps. I can't see anything. So yeah, here we are. Um, I just want to know, I was reading in Luke, but I know it's in Matthew also. John the Baptist is the first one that baptized in water. Is there any uh, reference in the Old Testament that can verify any type of baptism in water besides the Red Sea um, Jordan, and Noah. Okay, well, those aren't bad ones. Um, but I would say that the, the significance of water as a symbol in God's promise in the new covenant was looked forward to in like Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 36. The passages that describe the coming of the new covenant age, right, that starts this new thing where no longer is the Levitical law and the Old Testament ceremonies this kind of intermediate function of human beings going to a priest and having these, these symbols and pictures of how we relate to God, those are going to be set aside because Christ the Messiah has shown up, and then he's going to send his spirit, not just to be an influence and, and, a, and a force of conviction among people, but he's going to dwell within them and change their hearts. And to quote those passages, right, he's going to change our heart of stone to a heart of flesh. And one of the things that's describing our relationship to God at that point is we're going to be washed with water. Right, made clean, sprinkled clean with water. Now, there were ceremonies where the hyssop branch was used as terms of, of cleansing people with water, sometimes with blood. It depends on the situation in the Levitical law. But when they looked forward to being born of, of water, that was such an important symbol. That's why Jesus in John 3, he, he chides Nicodemus for being a teacher of Israel, and he doesn't know that you've got to be born of water in the Spirit. Because those were the two things that had to happen. You need to be cleansed of your sin, in, in this washing of water is the picture. It's a symbol. It's a picture. And you've got to have a new heart. The spirit has to change you. He needs to put a new spirit within you. So you have a, have a new start with sins forgiven and a new interior life. Okay? The water was a symbol of that. And so it was in baptism. So we have a new thing, a new ordinance that's going to be started. Jesus is going to tell them in Matthew 28, 
to do baptism in the name of Christ to every disciple. That was a picture of this cleansing. Now, it's all a picture. Just like the Lord's Supper, the elements are pictures or symbols of that. Uh, and sometimes, of course, with both, both the Lord's Supper and baptism, those have been easy causes for false teaching throughout church history. We thought wrongly about those because they're such tangible things, right? Get baptized in literal water, eat this literal piece of bread, and drink this literal cup of, of juice or wine. That, that has caused a lot of people to, to build theology as they shouldn't. But both of them were pictures of something. And so it was appropriate that the new covenant age would be pictured symbolically by being dunked in water. That, that was why this was a new thing. It wasn't like a one-to-one correspondence between something they were doing in the Old Testament. Although it wasn't unique, not to throw a, a wrench in this at this point, there were other groups that would baptize people as an initiatory rite into what they were doing. There were baptismal fonts or tanks, not fonts, but places they stepped down into, even in the Qumran uh, uh, digs that we've done out there in the Judean desert. I say we, I say that because we're interested in biblical things. I was not out there digging anything up. But um, so they, they, they had ablutions, we would say. Look that word up. Ablutions or, or washings that would show, you know, some kind of initiatory right into a group or a community. Uh, but Christianity then, right, God in his plan wanted to symbolize this washing of water with this baptismal rite. And just like you're not eating Christ's body, because he said, right, I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom. It's the same thing with the water. The water is not cleansing you of your sins, but it's a symbol of that. And that's why we have a whole new thing that we didn't have in the Old Testament. Nothing really corresponding to it cleanly, other than a prediction of a prophecy that symbolized our forgiveness. Great question. Hey, Pastor Mike. Uh, I had a question on uh, Romans 1, and uh, I'm 40 years old. And the level of insanity that we live in today um, just seems to increase at warp speed. Um, and in uh, the 28th verse of uh, Romans 1, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Um, do you see like what we're going through um, as a divine judgment uh, from God, uh, in essence, like an abandonment to the reprobate mind? That's my question. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, there's always been segments of society being turned over to their sin to be completely debauched and, and debased and, and, and shamed, right? I mean, look at the stuff that is going on in the headlines of our country in the, the, the Biden administration, in the decrees and the statements that are made by people every day online that are applauded that you dare not disagree with. This is now um, characterizing our civilization. And all I'm saying is it's not that it's new, right? And it's not even that it's new to take over a civilization. It's just that this usually marks the end of a civilization. So yeah, it could be judgment in the sense that, okay, at this point, we're going to so eat our filth Right, that we're going to, as a civilization, as, as, as a country, right, collapse. Right? Rome collapsed, in part, with a lot of the same symptomatic sins and immorality that are taking place in Western culture today. Um, you know, but you can't do a lot of these things in other cultures. And, and I'm just saying, right, it's like when, when it was Pride Month, right, and everyone was putting up their rainbow, uh, you know, their, their logos in, in the rainbow flag, they weren't doing that in Middle Eastern countries. Right? They weren't doing that in Islamic countries. 
And I'm not saying that, you know, hey, this is a righteous society because we'd say their theology is all wrong. I mean, it's, it's deadly wrong. And yet when I was in, um, I was teaching uh, actually with Pastor Lucas sitting right next to you. Uh, we, we were out in uh, UAE. Dubai. Dubai. I was teaching in Dubai. And uh, I don't know if you remember even some of those conversations, Pastor Lucas, but they were like feeling bad that we were in Amer- that from America, right? It's like, you know, I was there teaching theology and they love, they love that, right? It was a training center, like a seminary for people. But they were like, oh man, it must be a mess living there with all that immorality that you have over there. You know, just uh, homosexuality and transgenderism. It's just, that's a mess. And I'm thinking to myself, what? Well, it's funny because I don't think of it that way because you're out there in a culture that's fighting just for freedom of religion and we're trying to, to chase the government around in Middle Eastern countries, right? They're all sending their people from countries around to be trained in, in Dubai because it was one place where we could do it, at least with some freedom. And I'm thinking to myself, you guys are the guys we think are oppressed. They're looking at us as, you're oppressed with immorality. It must be horrible. And, and I'm thinking to myself, you're right, right? And so in that sense, we may see this as a portent for the end of our civilization. And I'm not sitting here, you know, as a doom and gloomer, although you may say, well, I've listened enough to your sermons. You seem like a doom and gloomer. But I am saying we do need to wake up and smell the coffee. We're not living in 1950s America. And, and you just point out something I would just fully agree with. Yes, it is a judgment on any society when you, they're just turned over. It's like parents. If you had eight kids, right, and they all start growing up, and they just all start, you know, smoking crack and, and, and prostitutes and all the rest. Um, I'm not talking about him. Uh, but there are people with sons that do all that. Uh, but if you think about it, at some point, if you just say, well, whatever, I can't stop them, you know, you're, you're, it would be like your family is just going to collapse. This is a sign of God, God. If a parent is just turning their kids over to all of that, um, it's like God saying, okay, fine. And, and uh, so we've always thought we were invincible. And I think we're going to find that uh, our sin is going to take us down. Because society can't function the way we're functioning. You know, we cannot sit here and fight realities. I tried to talk about last week in the sermon. We, we, we just can't do that and survive. We can't even have a conversation about biology anymore, right? We can't ask a Supreme Court justice nominee, what is a woman, right? I mean, this is insanity, and it's getting worse, and it's all based on sin. You're absolutely right. So, yes, it is a judgment upon our society because we thought we could play around with sin or to quote Proverbs, we thought we could scoop fire in our lap and not be burnt, and we're getting burnt. And everything we loved about our society that made it prosperous is, is going away, if we haven't noticed, with 9-plus percent inflation at the current moment. Yes, back in the back. Yeah, I have two questions, if you'll entertain that. Um, first, it's Jesus' modeled prayer to the Father. Um, so do we have reason to exclusively pray to the Father? Um, and second, are there markers in Scripture where we can determine uh, what Scripture is literal and what is poetic? Yeah. Um, now, I think the way you worded the question, I'm not sure that's what you meant, but in the first question about the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer of Christ, Matthew 6, uh, do we have license to pray in another way? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, yes, I think so, because even in the prayers that we do see recorded in Scripture, right, even Jesus' prayers, he doesn't just recite that. So I know just by example, if Jesus is saying, pray like this, and then he comes over here in John 17, his longest recorded prayer, and doesn't pray exactly like that, I'm going to say, okay, I, I get it. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul praying. There's lots of ways to pray, but the elements of prayer, 
right, that are given to us in the Lord's template prayer, the disciples' prayer, we should call it, uh, yeah, those are, those are elements we should, we should follow. It's starting with knowing who you're talking to, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There, there are elements that you better not forget. Just like when Jesus is praying in John 17 and modeling prayer for us there, right? He's got a high view of his Father in every other sentence of, of the prayer. And, and give us this day our daily bread. Well, what was the need of the moment when Jesus was about to go to the cross? Well, I need my disciples to be one. I need you to sanctify them in truth. Today, what they need is to be resolved to be faithful to you. I mean, those were the things, basically, Michael Barr's paraphrase, but things that were being said in his prayer. Well, that was the daily bread that was needed. So these are prompts. These are categories. These are ways to do it. And so when you go to church, if you don't go to a church where you stand up and recite these words and you think, wow, you're not very godly because you're not saying the model prayer of Christ, I'm saying, well, because that's not how this was designed to be recited. Is it there more on that? Uh, sorry, I don't think I was clear in my question, but I, I meant um, it, to whom should we yeah. address in the Trinity head? Yeah, 90, 99% of the time in Scripture, it is to the Father in the authority or the name of Christ. And by name, we mean we're coming knowing that we have no right to talk to you. We have no right to talk as sinful fallen creatures to a holy God. And yet we're coming right to, to, to look at the picture in the book of Hebrews about Christ being our great high priest. Just like if I were a priest, a normal priest in Israel, right? I would think I can't even come to God as a priest without thinking about that day of Yom Kippur where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and represents the whole nation and sacrifices uh, the, the, the animals and has the goat into the wilderness and the scapegoat. I, I've got to think that I'm coming really on the, on the coattails of someone else. And so we enter in boldly into the throne of grace because we have a great high priest who intercedes for us. Romans chapter 8, I mean, just the whole center part of the book of, of Hebrews. So I do think that should be, just like in Scripture, the predominant way that we pray. Does Stephen pray to Jesus when he's getting stoned to death? Yes. Okay, sure. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Uh, I'm just thinking, and there is times in my prayers where I'm going to kick into saying, Jesus, you know what it's like, right? Dealing with what I'm dealing with. You were here, you had fingernails, you had, you had people that, that wore you out, you were fatigued, you were tired, you were physically hurting, you know what it was to be thirsty. Um, so there are times I just naturally kick my prayer over to God, I mean to Jesus, the Son, but I think predominantly the example is I, I'm really talking to the Father through the authority of the Son. Uh, and, and to the Spirit, we have no examples of that, but you know, he, he has, speaking of ontology and authority, he is God, right? The, the, the third person of the Godhead. So if I were to pray to the Holy Spirit, that wouldn't be wrong. But if that's the predominant way you're praying, I'm thinking, I just, I just don't think that would be a healthy way to pray. We should be healthy in our praying, praying directly to the Father through the authority of the Son, and I hope the direction of the Spirit, how the Spirit would prompt us either by conviction or by, by encouragement. Um, your second question, remind me what it was. Yeah, it was uh, markers of uh, literal and oh, yeah. poetic scripture. Yeah, it's funny because I was just reading in the scripture yesterday somewhere where I thought, this is a good example of, of that. And um, of course, I can't remember what it was right now. But um, yeah, it, it would be like um, someone handing me a, a book or, or a newspaper or whatever and saying, you know, here, read this, but I'm not going to give you any instructions about what, what is literal and what's figurative, you know, or what's allegorical. Um, it, it's, it's almost a common sense 
approach, right? There is something that we do in school, right? Obviously, we study the rules of interpretation. We call it hermeneutics, which is what it means to, to rightly interpret something. And we should really think through, especially if we're going to be teachers, kind of the logical rules that we prescribe to think that we want to rightly understand a passage of Scripture. Um, so there are rules, but those rules are so inherent in usually how we read anything. Uh, we know if we're talking about something that is, is, uh, is metaphorical. Like, like this morning, if I said, you know, I, I got up early this morning and, and I beat the sunrise, uh, you'd know I was talking about the fact that the earth was spinning and uh, right, the, the sun really, in relation to us, I, I, we were moving. And so it wasn't like the sun really rose. It was like, you know, the earth rotated enough for me to see the sun. But I didn't say that, right? Because you know that, that turn of phrase. And, and it may have been in Job. Maybe it was earlier in the week. But it was, it was this passage where I thought, maybe it was in the Psalms. Who knows? I shouldn't even try to recall what it was yesterday. But um, and maybe it wasn't yesterday. <laughs> but it was something where I thought, here is a passage. Maybe it was in Psalms where in in 1 Samuel, there was a clear statement about it. And then in the Psalms, it was said so metaphorically, it was said so poetically. But those things become, I, I think, most obvious in the ways that we would read anything. So it, that's not a very helpful answer for you right now. I could hand you a hermeneutics textbook, or we could look at any passage of Scripture and say, you know, here's the general rule of thumb. Just like in reading a newspaper or a book, I'm going to generally lean to always try and take this literally, Right? And, and that means like exactly like what the words literally say, unless there's a reason for me not to that is given to me within the sentence itself or the context. And, and, and so even in the context of the Psalms, I immediately know like, okay, it's a song book and song lyrics are poetic. And so when it talks about, did we read Psalm 19 this morning? Right, The, the sun rises like a bridegroom, maybe that was yesterday. Uh, that's not the passage I was thinking of earlier. Uh, you're really deep in my head at this point. But the point is, right, it's a bridegroom. It's not like, oh, was, was the son wearing a tux? Right? That we just know you, you're being metaphorical. Um, so take it literally whenever you can. And this gets important when you're reading what we call apocalyptic texts. Apocalyptic texts, if you're looking at, I used to teach a genres class in the New Testament. If you look at texts that are given to us as, I saw this, that's how the whole book of Revelation starts, right? In, in Revelation chapter 4, at least. John says he was taken up to heaven, and I saw this, and he starts explaining it. And we have Old Testament books that are that way, sections of books, Zechariah, parts of the Bible that are given as a description of what someone saw. Ezekiel, first ten, nine chapters of Ezekiel. Those passages, if you look at them, you think, okay, those are the hardest ones for us to determine. How literal do I take what you're saying? And all I can tell you, just as long as I brought up Ezekiel and, and Revelation, if you look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and you look at the beginning, the first 10 chapters actually of Ezekiel, and you compare some of the things like the four living creatures, right? you see two people that are separated right, by 600 years giving us descriptions of heavenly beings, and they look a lot alike. And yet they're, what they're relaying is, here's what I saw in this vision. Here's what God allowed me to see in this heavenly throne. Well, that's interesting. Now, I do know it's got to be some kind of like, this looks like this, and this looks like that. But, you know, how literally do I take it? Like, I had someone ask me this week, like, in the, in the, in, in the New Jerusalem, will there literally be a, a, a river running from the throne, and on both sides we got trees bearing fruit? And I'm like, 
Yeah, I think so, right? Even though the way it's described, like a sea of crystal. Well, it was not going to be crystal, right? But, but it will be like crystal. So, but I think, yeah, as long as I can take it as literally as I can read it and say, is there any reason I shouldn't? So I think that should be the default for all of us when we read Scripture. Is it okay if I ask more than one question? Okay. In <laughs> um, the coattails of what that gentleman just asked, is the scripture that says the nation most blessed will be most cursed, could that be referring to America? I, I don't think that we are specifically intended in any scriptural passage, but I think that all of the principles of to whom much is given, much is required, right, clearly applies to us. Mm -hmm. So the applicability of those texts to America, no doubt. But in terms of, yeah, that's what the author intended, and, and God was using that author to write about America, right? I don't think that would be the case. Yeah. And also in Joel 2.25, it mentions um, that God will restore the years the locust have eaten. Could that apply to someone who accepts Christ, and then they've lived a sinful life, and their, Christ, their life in Christ will make up for those sinful years? Well, there was a literal locust plague in Joel's day, and he's speaking literally of yeah. that plague. But what's the principle there? If I said the principle is something that has to be true in every Christian's life, then I would, I would it'd be wrong. Like the thief on the cross, right? How many years did he sow his wild oats, just to use another analogy, and yet he dies on a cross. He's a Christian for a few hours. Mm -hmm. I think, okay, well, God didn't restore those years. And I would say, well, how many rewards will he get? Well, a, a few, some, right? He stood up for Christ against the other criminal on the cross, so there's some merit there. But when we look at wood, hay, and straw, quote-unquote, and gold, silver, precious stones, and we think, okay, for whatever I wasted in my life, it's going to be resupplied by, by reward-worthy events. I said, well, I can't take that as a rule. But I can say the graciousness of God in treating Israel after the locust plague, that's a, that's a, great, that's a gracious God. But what's in between those two is repentance. And so we're always saying, what's the point of all that? The point is for you to repent that God may now bring times of blessing into your life, that the favor of God can be seen in your life. Also, um, I hope I've explained this right. On the furnishings of the temple, they appear to be situated in the way of a cross to the Holy of Holies. Is that accurate or scriptural? I don't think they're in the form of a cross. They are concentric in a sense, but the Holy of Holies is a cube, and it's in the back of a rectangular holy place. So, I mean, I know that when we talk about the placements and you see some of those images of the placements of the, you know, the, 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 you know, the altar outside, the altar of incense on the inside, the candelabra, the showbread, even those things are hard for us to place carefully. Um, and I think some people have made too much of what they emphatically assert about things being in, in which places and what they represent. And that was a very popular thing to do in the early 20th century. Books written about, like, here's how Christ is seen in the arrangement of the furniture in the tabernacle or the temple. And I'd just be careful about extrapolating too much and reading back into those what we're trying to see. And even though I think there's a ton of precursors to looking to who Christ would be. I mean, think about the altar itself, right? Christ is seen as the one who is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, just like a lamb would be burnt on the altar. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's more of a room at the end of a rectangular room, whereas the holy place, and then you've got 
Ark of the Covenant sitting in the middle of it uh, with the pole sticking out of it. So, yeah. Where's the mic? Just speak up. Right here. <laughs> Center stage. Center stage. <laughs> oh, there you are. Yes. Uh, there you Now I can see you. You want to hold it? Okay. Pastor yes. uh, Mike, I, I work for an organization that, that is a faith-based organization, uh, and I've been there for 28 years. And I uh, something just happened within the last couple of weeks that God has put it upon my heart to say, I cannot be silent. And you broached the subject a few questions ago. Uh, I need to have some scripture that I can use in my response to an organization now that now refers to pregnant people. So please give me some scripture that I can, because I have to. God yeah. put it upon my heart to respond, and I want to make sure that I'm fully armed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I would never capitulate to that language. And um, that that's... You know, like Hans Christian Andersen, Emperor has no clothes. You're asking us to play along with the, the folly, right, that men can get pregnant because people want to assert their own identity uh, as whatever they want it to be. Uh, it's absurd. I would start with Carl Truman's book. Um, what's the shorter one, Pastor John? The, the Strange New World. Strange New World is the short version. Uh, of that book that he wrote two books, but the shorter version, Strange New World, um, that is filled not only with scripture, but the logic of how to move, how we have moved as a civilization to where we're at, to where now they're trying to force Christians in a faith-based organization to say, you know, you can't say pregnant women anymore, you have to say pregnant people. Um, that's insanity. And, and at some point we have to stop. It's one thing, right, when we as a you know, at least historically pluralistic society want to say, well, the church is going to sit there and we're not going to militantly go out there and force people to, to do what the Bible says, right? We're evangelists. I, I get that. But to then say, no, now they're telling us as Christians or faith-based organization employees that now we have to play along with their game, and we're not going to do that. You can't do that. We shouldn't do that. And you're going to lose your jobs over it. I might lose my job over it. But we have to say this is, abs this is absurd. It's insanity. So I would recommend you look at Carl Truman's book, or I'd look at Matthew 19. Jesus talks about, you know, he created the male and female. End of discussion. I mean, have you not read? You know, what are you guys, dumb? It's what he's saying to the Pharisees of his day. Uh, they were talking about divorce, but he starts with quoting Genesis chapter 2, and I'm saying, of course, he creates male and female. you got two choices, and only one of them has ovaries and can have a baby. So I'm sorry. If you want me to play your game, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play. And and I think if enough of us say we're not gonna play, I guess either we'll be a a tight persecuted subculture, or you know at some point someone's gonna go okay, or the society's gonna collapse, and only the sane people are gonna have any reason to keep functioning as a civilization. I don't know. That's I know over the top talk, but uh, yeah, you got to read Carl Truman's the summary of of his bigger book which now escapes me too, Pastor John. Remember the bigger book's name? The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Great book, but it's, it's pretty dense and there's a lot of philosophy in it. So his little book, uh, Strange New World, which is a take obviously on Brave New World, uh, which if you haven't reread that lately, you probably should. But read that one first, Strange New World. Yes. Speak up wherever you're at. Um, so there in the you. Bible... <laughs> 
uh, Christ says, every tree that does not bear fruit in me will be cut off. And so my question is, um, how can we know the difference between a dry season and not being in Christ? Yeah, well, if a dry season becomes that someone could look at you and say, you're not following Christ, then I would say it's hard for you to justify saying, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't follow Christ. Okay? In other words, there are people that say, well, this has been a hard season of my Christian life. Uh, I've struggled to do a lot of things that I know I should do. That's different than someone who says, um, I'm, just not, I'm just not bearing fruit. I, I'm not interested in bearing fruit. You, you've got to say, at some point, anyone should be able to step into your life and say, hey, you're a Christian, you should do this. And you should be able to say, you're right. The core desire of my heart is to do that. And you're right. Would you help me? Keep me accountable. Let's work together to see me get back to my first love, right? To quote Revelation chapter 2. Um, so what I don't want is to give anyone false hope that they can embrace Christianity, to use Jesus' words, to embrace the word with joy, right? And then when the troubles or trials of life come along, they, they're, just, they're not interested in bearing fruit. There's only one soil in the four soils that bears fruit. Now, there's distinction between those fruits. You may say, well, I'm not, I'm not super Christian like that gal, right? Well, there's 30, 60, 100 fold. There's a lot of variety in the good soil. And you may say, well, I'm just trucking away at you know 20 fold and here's my best friend and she's so godly, I can't be like her. To, to her, I look like I'm in a dry season, but I'm doing the best I can. And so the distinctions between Christians in terms of their, 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 their fruitfulness, I understand is, is, is varied. But you cannot say that just because someone embraced Christianity, they say they embrace Christianity with genuine faith, but they don't produce fruit, that somehow they can keep saying, well, I'm a Christian. And I'm not saying you were and you lost it. I'm saying there's only one way for me to view that based on Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 3, but Hebrews chapter 2 in particular, that or Romans 8, plenty of passages, you become a real Christian, you are going to persevere to the end. You will bear fruit. Will there be ups and downs? I'm, yes, we all have ups and downs. But if I say a dry season is a willful dry season, it's even like we read this one, I know we read in today's daily Bible reading, keep me from presumptuous sins, right? In other words, a presumptuous sin is I'm not interested in bearing fruit in this season of my life. And I hope no Christian would ever be able to say that. You may look back at the last few months ago, it wasn't very good. My time in the Word was weak. My prayer life was weak. Okay, great. But right now, if I said, if I preached a sermon on your prayer life and your prayer life is weak, you'd feel conviction. You'd say, you're right, preacher. That's what I need to do. And you would pray and you would say, I need to work on that. And you would start working on that. That's different than someone saying, don't mess with me. I'm a Christian because, you know, six years ago, I was really on fire for God, but I'm not interested now. And, and here's the thing about the Bible. It's not trying to give anyone confidence or assurance if they're not bearing fruit. Because Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. And so that's the whole point. The assurance grows that I know that I'm connected with Christ if I'm bearing fruit. And my point is, every time you come to church, I hope you're being encouraged and pushed and prompted and convicted to bear more fruit. So yeah, we all. if you say, I've just come through a, a barren season in my Christian life, okay? I hope it's the kind of barren season you look back and you say, I am regretful of it. I feel bad about it. I'm convicted about it. And you know what? I'm, 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 I'm stepping up to walk in step with the Spirit, and I'm going to double down on that. And, and that's why we should gather together all the time and all the more as we see the day approaching and our civilization tanking because we need to stir one another up to love and good deeds. So, um, yeah, and, and for me to say, well, let me just give you some comfort if you're in a dry season. If a dry season is defined, I know that's just a poetic way to put it, 
as like, I'm not interested and I'm not going to do the right thing. I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to pray. Then I'm going to say, how in the world can you say you're a follower of Christ if you're willfully, presumptuously saying I'm not interested in following Christ? We have no free time to do that, right? We have no spot where you, well, you, get, you get at least 13 free months in the Christian life to not be a Christian, right? No, you're supposed to be a Christian every day. You're supposed to be prompted and spurred on every day. Does that, maybe there's more to that. Does that help or is there more to that? Yeah, definitely. Okay, okay, good. Thank you. Hello, Pastor Mike. Uh, the question I have is that when, when Christ died on the cross for our sins, did he, have, did he die for everyone who ever lived on this earth, or he, uh, he died only for the elect? Well, let me ask you a question in response to that. When you say, did he die for them, okay, if you mean, did he take their sins upon him and pay for them, as the Bible says, a propitiation for their sins, and that their sins are forever paid for, do you mean that by the question? Yeah, just, you know, uh, when you, okay. I, I, know, I know how we word the question, but I'm trying to dig down deeper and say, if by that you say, no, Christ died for the person that's going to hell that never responds to Christ, that shines Christ on, and yet Jesus already paid a propitiation, a satisfaction before his Father for all the sins that they've committed. They have been blotted out by Christ's death. Is that what you mean by died for them? Uh, what, what, yes, you know, for, you see, for people it, ask that question, you know, it's not a question, they don't know pro propitiation anything. Okay, so but the death is for everyone who ever lived, or so for the, the elect or predestined. Well, I'm trying, I'm trying to answer that in a way that will help maybe you answer it for the people that are asking you the question. In other words, the little word huper in Greek, which is this word for, Right? And he died for us, right? The, the just for the unjust. That's a huge statement, right? That, that the father sends his son to be the payment for, right? The unjust, for the unrighteous, right? He is the propitiation, Romans 4, for our sins. Okay, so if, if Christ expiates and he eliminates, and if he nails sins to the cross that are forever before the father blotted out, then I got a problem saying, yeah, Jesus died and blotted out the sins of every non-Christian that's going to stand before the great white throne and have the books opened, and they're, now they're going to be punished for every sin. Does he take back the payment at that point? And then I'm saying, no, no, no. The reasons Christians, at least in our kindred, right, our ilk, have always said, no, Jesus died for those that he would save is because there's where the theological problem comes in, and how in the world, right, did, did that happen? Did Jesus say, well, I'm not sure who's going to respond, so I'm going to die for everyone's sin and blot everyone's sin out. But once we get to the end of this thing and I see what really happens, then I'm going to take back the payment for all of these people because they didn't respond. And I'm saying that's not how we view God in his sovereign plan over salvation. That's why we've said, no, God knows what he's doing, right? He's going to call dead to life. He's going to bring them to himself. And so that's why I, I said what I said. I'm not trying to spar with you. I'm just saying, when someone says, did Jesus die for non-Christians, right? I'm going to say, what do you mean by for them? Do you mean, did he blot out their sins? And I'm going to say, I just can't, can't go there. Because either it makes Jesus or God, the whole triune God, unaware of what's going to happen, right? And I'm saying, well, that's not how God works, right? God not only knows what's going to happen, he plans what happens. So I'm saying, I think Jesus died, right, for the people that he is going to save. And all I'm saying is, well, 
I guess I'm left with this. What about those passages? He didn't just die for our sins. He died for the sins of the whole world. Well, here's a Jewish apostle, John, writing and saying, it isn't just us. And John's the one who makes the biggest point of this, not John with the microphone, John in the Bible. John the apostle. And what he's saying is, listen, hey, because here was the whole contention. We just got through it in Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. It's not just for us. He died for the Gentiles. He died for all. And as I like to say, it's all without distinction. Scythian, slave, barbarian, free, not all without exception, right? He didn't die for all without exception or all their sins would be blotted out eternally. And I'm saying Jesus died for our sins. He died for the elect. He died for those who he has called to salvation. Now, again, if you're going to say, well, then, Pastor Mike, uh, if you believe that, well, then you don't do evangelism or you don't pray for lost people or you don't. I'm saying I am not God, man. I have no clue who's elect in this town. I have no clue who God is calling to salvation. But I know that in South Orange County, he's got people that are, to use the words of the book of Acts, appointed to eternal life, and he wants us to reach them with the gospel. And I don't know who that is. So I have to indiscriminately do evangelism because he didn't just die for the Jewish people, but we don't have that problem anymore because now we're just a bunch of Gentiles talking about more Gentiles and Jews. He died for everyone. In, in what sense? For every kind of person, every, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, all every last individual. Well, if that were the case, what's with the payment for sin? They're going to go pay for their sin in the lake of fire. So it's a logical argument that I think is biblically sound, but we stumble over these words when we look at them in context. We then can understand we shouldn't stumble over those words because John's very concerned that we don't have a Jewish gospel, right? It's, it's a salvation, right, that is powerful. It's mighty to say to, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that also to the Greek was a huge statement for Jewish people that thought it's all about the descendants of Abraham. So... I don't think it should be a point of contention. If someone says, well, I think Jesus died for everyone because I just read 1 John and it says he died not just for our sins, but the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2. I'm going to go, oh I, oh, I get that. But I don't think it's what John meant, right? The sins of the whole world, like every last single person on the planet. Because if that's the case, well, then he's either got to take back the payment at the great white throne judgment, right? Or um, there's double jeopardy, I suppose. They get to pay it twice. Father paid for the sins on the cross for this person, and now he's going to pay for it himself. I just, I just think it makes sense. And yet, I don't think we should fight over that to me. And yet, I'm sure this will get taped. It'll be streamed. And someone's going to go, see, I told you. Right? Pastor Mike, man, that's where he's at. I, I don't understand what the difference would be if you think, well, then you're going into an evangelistic conversation trying to look for the you know, elect seal under his, his, his bangs or something. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I have no idea. I'm sharing the gospel indiscriminately to everyone. But I am stuck in my thinking at saying, yeah, I think Jesus knew what he, the God knew what he was doing, the Father knows what he's doing, the Son knows what he's doing, and he, he died with a very specific, definite focus. Thank yeah. you. Answer my question. I appreciate it. Okay. Yeah. And I wasn't trying to spar with you. I, I'm just saying, I'm trying to train you when someone says that, if you really, whatever. I don't even think we should be arguing about it, but if you do get drawn to that conversation, say, what do you mean for them? died for them. And I just think if you dig down a little bit deeper, it, it certainly will help. Not that everyone's going to come to the same conclusion. Yes. Thank you, Pastor Mike. Um, my question, and it does tag team on the other gentleman over there that was uh, in Romans 1. Um, so in Romans 8.20, it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Can you talk a little bit about how God is subjecting the creation to futility and maybe what we're missing in terms of 
Why is there so much craziness in the world? Well, that particular passage is trying to distinguish the sons of God being revealed. In other words, here is the promise that God is going to take his people, and the reason he calls men and women sons there, not because he's gender fluid or confused, it's because the son analogy was the inheritor, right? The son got the inheritance. And so, firstborn son. So, the, the sons of God are those that are the inheritors of God's redemptive work. And when they're revealed to be who they are, not as the embattled group of persecuted people within the Roman Empire, or in our case, in Western civilization, we're going to be revealed as those, like these fishermen from Galilee, they're sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Or it says in the book of Revelation, he's got an iron scepter and we're going to have an iron scepter and we're going to be ruling the nations as co-regents with Christ. That picture right, of revealing of the sons of God, which really first stage is the millennial kingdom, that picture of that reign, right? that is a picture of now saying, now the earth is ultimately going to come in the freedom of the sons of God being glorified. And we will have a glorification of the world. And so... This world was subjected to futility back in Genesis 3 when God said, cursed is the ground because of you. You are sinful, rebellious people who didn't do what I wanted you to do. Now the ground's not going to do what you want it to do. You're going to want to plant seeds and have a beautiful garden, and now all of a sudden, not you didn't want it. Here come the thorns and the weeds and the thistles. So I'm going to make the world a lot like you, and you're going to be reminded every day that you are sinners. And so you got a body, you should put, you know, carrots and apples and, and, and all this good stuff in your mouth every day, and you should have a healthy body, but then you get cancer. And it's like, what, what happened? Well, your body's not doing what you want it to do. You didn't do what, what I wanted you to do. You, you now are going to live in a world, a creation that is subjected to futility. So if you see that phrase and you extrapolate, we're talking about the society and the people in it. That's not the context of Romans 8. Romans 8 is, the world itself is groaning, quote-unquote. It's, it's, it's anthropomorphized. It's, it's, it's personified. That's a better word. And uh, it's like it can't wait to be done with cancer. It can't wait to be done with, with you know, rotting trees. It can't wait to be done with, uh, you know, the locusts that strip. It can't wait to be done with seismic activity that cause earthquakes. It can't wait to be done with volcanoes. It can't wait to be done with viruses. It can't wait to be done with thorns and thistles. Because when the children of God are revealed, ultimately, as it says in First, Second uh, Peter chapter 3, God is going to create a new world where righteousness dwells. Not just in individual hearts, but just like he had to curse the world around the sinful heart, now he's going to bring creation into freedom and redemption. And just like we get glorified bodies, right? That's just a depiction of a glorified planet where you plant stuff in the ground and it grows up exactly how you want it to. Uh, so... Yeah, but I know what you probably are looking at, and that is society is bound to corruption, right? And, and that's certainly true, and I think Romans chapter 1 is speaking specifically to that. And we as a, as a society, or back to the Proverbs, sin is a disgrace to any people, right? but righteousness exalts a nation. So we are reaping what we've sown, to quote um, Galatians 5. We are, we are now reaping, right? We, we, we've... We're reaping the whirlwind. We are getting out of our society this um, horrible reality that we're starting to live in. It's not as horrible as it can be, but you know there are certainly times and periods in the past that's been worse, and places around the world it's a lot worse. But for us, it's looking pretty bad. Yeah, we'll go to the back. Hi, Pastor Mike. Uh, question: uh, Meeting the Lord in the air. Um, first, the dead in Christ, then 
the church uh, in Christ uh, were changing and twinkling of the eye. Uh, I've been hearing different pastors saying pre-tribulation and post-tribulation. Well, I think we're going to be uh, taken up to meet the Lord in the air because at the end of the tribulation, he's not going to meet anybody in the air. He's going to come with his saints to the earth. Zechariah 14, right? Clearly, uh, Revelation chapter 19, he is going to come and judge the nations, as he says, right? Matthew 24, 25, all of it discourse, ending with the judgment of the nations, separating the, the shepherd like would separate sheep from goats. He's going to arrive on earth after the battle of Armageddon. So, if he's got this unexpected, imminent taking up of the church and the dead in Christ rising, then when does he come and have his feet and toenails touch the Mount of Olives and it splits in half, Zechariah 14? When does that happen? That Revelation 19. Well, I think it happens after that seven-year period that's divided into three and a half years apiece. And he says, according to Daniel chapter 9, there's a 70th week of his time, as it says in Jeremiah, the time of Jacob's trouble. And you should look at Romans 11 afresh, where he's going to turn his attention, right, when the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled, to Israel. And he's going to, as the book of Revelation says, Revelation 6, going to pull out right out of the gate 144,000 Jews, each 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And he's going to work with Israel primarily as the focus of his work and it's a time of Jacob's trouble. As Jesus said, Matthew 24, a time of tribulation, a time of tribulation the earth has never seen or ever will see. That's not 70 AD. That's not any other period of time. It's a time that's yet to come. And that time that's yet to come is a period of time that's marked off not only in Daniel, but in the book of Revelation as a seven-year period. So what divides that seven years? Christ coming to take his church Right? and bringing them to what we assume at that particular time, as he described for us, as the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Bema Seat of Christ, and what's happening on earth. Well, Revelation chapter 6 through 19, it's a mess. He's going to persecute the church. He's going to press upon the church. The world has persecuted Christians. God's going to persecute the world. And I mean that because the word flipsis in Greek means the church has pressed against us. Persecution. Right? It, it's called tribulation. That's the word we translate it sometimes. The tribulation has come upon Christians in this life because the godless world is pressing against us. Well, in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, God now presses down upon the world. It brings tribulation on people. But in that, he's saving out of that time of Jacob or Israel's trouble, he's saving a remnant and bringing a whole generation to Christ. Read again, Romans chapter 11. He is now that the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, he is now going to bring in right the salvation, as he puts it, all of Israel will be saved. Right? It's going to be like Israel's now like a messianic Christian church because now all of a sudden we have this great conversion and adherence to Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the picture of being separated from this seven-year period. Uh, something major happens in the middle. As it says in the book of Daniel, that there is a breaking of the covenant of this world leader, right? This, this horn, this king of the south. All of this is going to take place in the middle of the tribulation. It's broken into two halves. And um, yeah, read Daniel chapter 9 through 12, Revelation chapter 6 through 19, Romans chapter, you can start in chapter 9, 10, and 11. All of those will help us, I think, get this idea of God's not done with Israel and it's going to start with a bad period of time, but the church is going to be saved from that. The coming of Christ for the church is unknown. The coming, like we don't know when it's going to happen. It's imminent. And the coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation is, is big. they got days spelled out. I mean, we know exactly how long it's going to be from the time that this world leader makes a covenant with Israel. So 
one is I can set my watch to it, and one is I don't know when it's going to happen. And, and one is he's going to meet the people in the air. One is he's going to meet people on the earth. Uh, you know, the focus is different. Just, I, I, I'm, one of my professors had me once take all the passages in the New Testament that talk about the return of Christ and try and see patterns and look for patterns and put them, basically, he was leading us to put them into two categories, right? And, and we can see two distinct things happening when Christ comes back, one for his church and one to deliver Israel. One, he comes to meet us in the air. One, he comes with us in the air to the, to the earth. So I'm a pre-tribulational guy, if you understand that. So yeah, there's a lot of talk about the end of the And one of the reasons I think that motivates it, when I have a conversations at least with post-tribbers, uh, they would say, well, you know, you and your pre-trib view is all, it's all just escapism. You're just trying to get off the planet. They just, you, you just don't want persecution. And so it's always pie in the sky. And you don't want to engage culture. And I'm just like, that's, that has nothing to do with my view. What my view has to do, it's bound by what I'm reading in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, in Daniel, in the book of Revelation, uh, in Matthew 24. I, I'm, I'm stuck with this because I think it's the best reading of the text. And a lot of good men disagree. A lot of good women, I don't mean to say only men are theologians, but I'm saying a lot of good Christians disagree on that. And that's fine. We can still be friends. They can still come and preach in our pulpit as, as has happened many times. But um, I, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Not as an escapist theology. Yeah, in the back. Hi, Pastor Mike. Hi. Thank you for having this QA. I have a question for you. And on... it'll be the last one now that I see the time. So go ahead. Oh, good. So Sorry. we're close with this End one. End with a great question. All right. I think it's simple. We started up with uh, Job. We're going to close with Job. Uh, first part of 1.6. And he reads, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. My question is, what are sons of God? mean you addressed a little bit ago that it could be creation but then some commentaries talk about angels so can you shed some light on this for us well let me clarify what i didn't mean to say and that is the revealing of the sons of god in romans 8 is our glorification and then the statement that was made was what about the subjection to futility of creation well that meant the physical creation Sons of God, I wasn't trying to equate that with creation. I was saying creation, at least as a contemporaneous, right, freeing from the bondage of the curse the same time that Christians are glorified. Um, but your question, the, the, here's the Hebrew, the ben, the ben Elohim, the um, phrase sons of God, is a phrase that, um, uh, yeah, is, is in my mind clearly in that text and in others referring to angelic beings. And, uh, of course, Satan is a part of that conference, right, and, and comes. And as you see throughout the book of Daniel, right, this, this celestial battle, and even in, in Ephesians we, we read about it, right, we, the cosmic powers and forces of, of, of darkness in the present age. All of this is going on that we don't see, but there's a lot of stuff happening, right, in the angelic category. And by angelic, I mean both elect angels, as they're put in... Uh, as Jesus puts it, the elect angels, they call them, and the evil angels, right? Uh, the devil and his angels. Uh, so we call them angels and demons usually, but demons are angels as well. When they come for this conference, right, I'm thinking, well, what is that about? I don't know, other than that's what happened. And I'm thinking that probably regularly happens. Now, I think probably, uh, like, I don't know, any business, and the world is business in the sense God's running a big kingdom here, 
you probably have all kinds of different staff meetings. And uh, so I'm assuming, as I look at Revelation 4 and 5 and others, I think he's probably calling his good angels, if you want to put them that way, elect angels in, and having conversations all the time. Uh, but the big wigs come in, and he's got one now that uh, the, the bad angels come. In particular, Satan is there at that Ben Elohim meeting, that sons of God meeting. So sons of God, I think, is a category, and if it sounds positive, it only sounds positive because we're used to saying son of God as a positive thing, just like we say angels is a positive thing, but it's a category of, of creation. In that case, it's non-physical beings. They're spirit beings, and that means they have intellect, emotion, and will, but no physical reality, but they're running things in many ways on this planet. And, and a lot of people here, leaders and kings, they rise and fall. As we see in the book of Daniel, there's fights going on that we don't even see, uh, in a lot of our politics and rising and of, of monarchs throughout history and kings. So there's a day there in Job that's described that's kind of like just peeling back the curtain, and it probably happens a lot. Who knows how often it happens? And God's saying, well, what's happening? Does God know what's happening? Of course he knows what hap what's happening. But he delegates and brokers authority and oversight on the planet, and for every positive oversight we have in the Scripture, like Michael over Israel, at least as it's described in the book of Daniel, right? There's demons that are assigned and dispatched to deal with that place and that region. I mean, look, for instance, in, in Isaiah chapter 14 or Ezekiel chapter 28, when you see these spirit beings described as being engaged in geopolitics at, at, a, at, a, at a Ben Elohim level, at, a, at an angelic level. So this is a common thing in scripture, even though it's rarely talked about, it's talked about in a way like it's normal. And that's all I can say is that the angels come together, in this case, both good and bad. I don't know how many. I don't know if they're just the top, you know, forced all generals of, of the angelic class, but they come before God and God goes, what's up? And he goes, I know what's up. Your dude there is, you know, all about you because you're good to him. That's the Mike Fabar's paraphrase. But then the book of Job plays itself out. Does that help? Okay, great. All right, gang. Um, thank you. I hope, and I have been praying that somehow you'll take something out of tonight that it would at least encourage you to study your Bibles or that you would be, you know, motivated by something or if your question was asked and answered that it might be helpful and a catalyst for you. So thanks for being a part of it tonight. Let me pray for you and I'll let you go. God, thank you for our team here and just for their love for your word, their desire to know you better, know your word better, even these things that seem esoteric and interesting like the the sons of God coming before God and having that conversation there in Job chapter 1. Uh, may these things help us, at least to expand our minds, that, that life is more than, than Facebook and Instagram, and that, that there's a huge world out there that is exposed to us in the scriptures, both the spiritual realm and even historically and what went on throughout history that, God, we need to be uh, just digging into. Help us, even as it says in Hebrews 5, to be people that long for that, that meat of the word so that our senses can be trained and our discernment can be trained to do what is right. So uh, as Psalm 119 would tell us, just let us love your word. Let us thank you for it seven times a day. I just pray that we would be people that would get into it more and more, even because of tonight's time together. In Jesus' name, amen.